I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 3. <clears throat> I'm going to try to squeeze about a 50-minute sermon into about, no, 50 minutes or so. Um, no, no, I promise I'll do better than that. Uh, I do want you to look with me at Luke chapter 3. Last Sunday, <clears throat> I talked to you a little bit from the first 20 verses of Luke 3 about John the Baptist. Talked about how John the Baptist was a faithful preacher who God used to warn people about the divine judgment they were soon to face and to call them to repentance, to tell people not to have false hope in your spiritual credentials, your background. Our only hope is in Jesus, amen? And John was a faithful preacher. He was also a man of humility. We saw that. He, he pointed to Jesus. And he knew that Jesus, his cousin, <laughs> was superior to him. And John was willing to pay the ultimate price for his faith. And so must we be willing to pay the ultimate price. Now this morning I want to direct your attention to Luke 3 verse 21. And John is baptizing still and he's finished baptizing the crowd. And there's one more man who steps out of the crowd. But this man was no ordinary man. This man was fully God and fully man. Verse 21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So here's the question I want you to think about this morning. Why was Jesus baptized? Now how you answer that question may determine whether or not you're a heretic. So answer carefully. Why was Jesus baptized? Now in Luke's account, we're not told of John's hesitation to baptize Jesus. But if you go to Matthew chapter 3, you'll find in Matthew's account that when Jesus came to Galilee, to Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him, John would have prevented him. John wanted to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? You see, again, John understood that he was the one who needed to be baptized, not Jesus, at least in John's estimation. John knew that Jesus was, was without sin. So why did Jesus have to be baptized if he was sinless? Now why do you get baptized? Why do you need to be baptized? And we'll pause here for a commercial and tell you that on Easter Sunday, if you've not been baptized, you should be baptized. So see me if you need to be baptized. But what does baptism symbolize? It symbolizes our identity, our union with Christ. And when you're baptized, you're declaring that your old life is over. The old way that you used to live, dominated by the world, dominated by the flesh, dominated by the devil, dominated by sin, that life is over and now I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. The old things are washed away, and now, behold, all things have become new. That's what baptism symbolizes. It also symbolizes one's inclusion into the body of Christ. When you 
become a Christian, when you are baptized, it symbolizes the fact that now you're part of a family, just like I just talked about a few minutes ago. You're part of a body, the body of Christ. And so you're symbolizing all those things. So why would Jesus need to be baptized? Now, remember, John the Baptist was calling people to repentance. And baptism was a symbol of that. But Jesus didn't have any need to repent. So that couldn't be the reason for his baptism. And that's clearly how John the Baptist felt about it. Again, back in Matthew chapter 3, John tried to stop him, said, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him and said, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John the Baptist consented and baptized Jesus. But what righteousness? Fitting to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? The law of Moses didn't say that someone had to be baptized. In fact, baptism seems to have arisen kind of in the period between the Testaments, between the Old and the New Testament. And, and, and John is baptizing people, a baptism of repentance. And again, Jesus didn't need to repent. So what righteousness was Jesus fulfilling by being baptized? Now, in order to answer that question, I need to make sure you're awake. I need to make sure you're strapped in because I've got some ground I want to cover and I don't have a whole lot of time to do it, okay? So you ready? I, I want to take you on a little theological history give you a little theological history this morning, all right? Does anybody like history? Okay, that's somewhat reassuring. Anybody like theological history? Okay. Fewer hands. So one of the earliest attempts to explain who Jesus was started with the premise that Jesus was just a normal human being whose mother and father were descendants of Adam, and since there had been other men in Jewish history like Enoch and Elijah who were taken up into God, some early Jewish believers in Jesus were drawn to what became known as adoptionism. And basically adoptionism is the belief that Jesus of Nazareth was simply a man who was adopted by God as his son when he was baptized. All right, that, that's adoptionism. Early, an early belief that began to lead people into heresy. They taught that Jesus was adopted, as I said, as, a, as God's son when he was baptized. And to the adoptionist, Jesus was simply a model or a goal for us to follow. And if Jesus could do something, we can do it. So walk in his steps. At Jesus' baptism, adoptionists believe that God set his seal of approval on what Jesus did by exalting him and giving him a name that is above every other name, seating him at his own right hand, and trusting to him the kingdom of heaven. And so then in light of that, adoptionists would teach that Christians are called 
to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And again, that's a command that just kind of fits right in with the adoptionist agenda. That Jesus was simply a model for us to follow, but he wasn't the Son of God. He was adopted as the Son of God. Are you staying with me? There's nuggets of truth in here. But remember, Jesus' life and mission was not the same as ours. While we are called in parts of Scripture to imitate Christ, His life, His mission was not the same as ours. He came into the world to die for our salvation, and that is not something that any of us are called to do. We don't die for anyone's salvation. Jesus already did. We are simply sinners who are saved by grace through faith, and Jesus was not. So Christianity speaks of God becoming a man, not a man becoming God. Now, you see the difference. Adoptionists said, a man became God. No, Christianity is God became a man. So if Jesus wasn't baptized as a sign of his adoption into the, God's family to fulfill all righteousness as an example for us, then why was he baptized? So if it wasn't God adopting him into his family at his baptism, what was it? Well, after adoptionism was, began to, the church began to address that, other false teachers began to kind of creep into the church. And there came another belief about Jesus, that Jesus was a divine being who became a man, but he was not God himself. He was divine in the sense that he was perfectly good and holy, but he didn't possess all the characteristics of God like infinity, eternity, immutability, and so on. This heresy is what became known as Arianism because the chief proponent of this belief was a man named Arius. I've talked about him before. Last year I talked about him a little bit. But Arius was a leader of the church in Alexandria, Egypt in the 300s. And he also was a teacher, so he had followers who uh, he taught at a school. And Arius began, had come to the conclusion that Jesus was a created being, the first of God's created beings, and he reasoned that a son, now listen carefully, he re, this is his reasoning, a son cannot be co-eternal with the Father. If Jesus is the Son of God, there must have been an instant, Arius thought, when Jesus didn't exist. And so those who became Arius' followers became known as Arians, and they concluded that Jesus was not divine. Arius believed that... Oh, I hit the wrong button, sorry. Uh, he, he believed that the Father and the Son were two separate beings and that the biblical model for their relationship is one of eternal subordination. Now that's, that's very key that you understand that Arianism is teaching the relationship between father and son is one of eternal subordination. In other words, Jesus is subordinate or under the father. They're not co-equal according to Arianism. Arius didn't deny the Trinity, 
He simply interpreted it in a hierarchical way. So, in Arius' view, again, the Son was not co-eternal with the Father, but the supreme creation of the Father. Are you still with me? Have I lost you in the weeds yet? Okay? So, why, why would I bring all this up again? We're, we're trying to figure out why, why is Jesus baptized? We're going to get to that here in a minute. Arius believed that God was always there. God the Father, as we call him. But there was not a time, there, or, but there was a time, Arius believed, when God was not Father. He didn't become Father until the Son was begotten. And he believed that the Son's knowledge of the Father is imperfect. He also believed that the Holy Spirit was subordinate to Jesus. So again, there's a hierarchy here in Arius' view. And Arius' view had a tremendous impact on the church. It did a lot of damage to it. And you may recall when I preached the Apostles' Creed, I talked a little bit about the Nicene Council, as it's been called at times. But in the year 325, the Emperor Constantine, who had become a Christian, or at least nominally, perhaps, had, had become a Christian, made Christianity the official religion in the Roman Empire. He realized that there was division happening, and he decided he was going to do something about it. So he convened a council, and in 325, there was the year 325, there was 318 bishops who presided over a council where they debated this issue. And the result of that council is what became known as the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed kind of expanded on the Apostles' Creed to explain exactly what the church means by when it talks about Jesus. And part of the Nicene Creed, I'm only going to show you the part here about Jesus, but the Nicene Creed says we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, now notice this phrase here, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again, in accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So that's the Nicene Creed about Jesus and emphasizing the fact that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. In other words, there was never a moment when he was not. He is co-equal with the Father. We believe in the Trinity. There is one God, but that one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Martin Luther said this. He, he thought that uh, all heresies, all errors, heresies, idolatries, offenses, abuses, and ungodliness in the church have arisen primarily because this second article of the Nicene Creed, or part of the Christian faith concerning Jesus Christ, he said all the abuses, all the offenses, all the heresies 
are all because this part of the apostles are the Nicene Creed has either been has been either discarded or abandoned. And then Luther said this. He said, "You must stay with the person of Christ. When you have him, you have all. But you have also lost all when you have lost him." My point in sharing all that with you this morning is simply to reiterate the fact that Jesus Christ is fully God. Fully God. Thomas Oden said the Son is unique. One and only eternal Son. Uncreated Son of God. This Sonship points to an eternal relationship, not to a temporal beginning point. One of the church fathers is a man named Gregory of Nazianzus. And Gregory of Nazianzus said this, he said, Father is not a name either of an essence or of an action, most clever sirs, but it is the name of the relation in which the Father stands to the Son and the Son to the Father. One and only Son indicates that Jesus is the only one of His class. In other words, Jesus is the one and only Son of God. And when He was baptized, He was not a man becoming God. But He was God in human flesh identifying with us. And there's the key point. His baptism was not to signify repentance of His own sins, but His identification with us who are sinners. Outside of the grace of God. Outside of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We have no hope. And it was for others, other than Himself, that Jesus Christ was baptized. Even at His baptism, Jesus was identifying with the suffering servant of Isaiah. You remember Isaiah told us, it said that He would be numbered with the transgressors. And that's what happened when Jesus was baptized. He became numbered with us. He identified with us. And he poured out his life to the point of death. Why? To die in our place. And so when he was baptized, Jesus became numbered with you and me. And at his baptism, it's a Trinitarian event. The Son is baptized, the Father speaks, the Spirit descends. It's a Trinitarian event. And Luke, I believe, is emphasizing here the point that Jesus was fully God. Are you still with me? Everybody still awake? Marvin, you still awake? I know you didn't get much sleep last night. Make sure you're still awake. All right, Wayne's still awake, so we're in good shape. All right, so Jesus was fully God, but Jesus was also fully man. Now notice where where Luke goes next in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, because Joseph wasn't really his father. His father, we know who his father was. But then notice what Luke does next. And I'm going to spare you this morning, and you're welcome. I'm going to spare you reading all these names. All right? 
You're welcome. Anybody else, when you get those list of names in the Bible, you just kind of skip them. You know what I try to do, though, whenever I come to a list of names like that? I'm reminded that God knows my name, too. You know, I can't pronounce those names. Well, some of them I can, but not all of them. But God knows those names. And he knows your name. And he knows my name. But Jesus was fully man. He was fully man. Now, I've told you a couple other heresies. Let me tell you one about Jesus being fully man. Docetic Gnosticism. This is one of the earliest heresies. In fact, most scholars believe that the Apostle John deals with this heresy in the book of 1 John. Docetic means, comes from the Greek word to seem or to appear. And Docetic Gnostics believe that Jesus only appeared to be man. They believed he was fully God. They just didn't believe he was fully man. They said Jesus was from God, but they denied that he was God in human flesh. They said his spirit was from God, but he only appeared to have a physical body because they believed that the physical body was inherently evil. And so they didn't believe in the incarnation. But Jesus was not only fully God, but he is also fully man. Fully man. Now I mentioned the, the genealogy here. And Luke traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. Now if you study Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy, there's some differences. And there's, there's reasons for that that I'm not going to get into all of them this morning. But some time ago, I became interested in my own family tree. Anybody here ever kind of traced your genealogy? I don't want to. You're kind of scared. So you're, you're probably wondering why Caleb brought this up here this morning. Uh, this, is, this is one of those infamous things. I, I bought this back at Christmas time. You know what this is, right? Anybody know what this is? It's a worthless waste of a cake. That's what this is. Somebody wasted some ingredients and made a fruitcake, which is nasty. My wife tried to throw this away the other day. I said, no, I need that on Sunday. I said, besides, they don't ever go bad, I don't think. If any of you want it, I'll let you have it at lunch, okay? But one of the things we're afraid of when you look at your family tree is sometimes you find fruitcakes in your family tree. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody got any fruitcakes in your family tree? Are any of you the fruitcake in your family tree? Okay, that's more like it. Some time ago, I began to kind of research my family tree a little bit. And I don't know much about my, I didn't know much about my extended family. My parents were saved out of the rough, if you know what I mean. And actually, after they were saved for a while, um, some of their, my grandparents disowned them because they became Christians and, and just... Just I never really knew my, my, my grandparents well. We'd go see them once or twice a year. Never really knew them that well. But you begin to look at my family tree, and some of you have seen this because I posted on Facebook a long time, a while back, but I, I discovered some cool things on my family tree. My seventh great-grandfather, I'm so proud of this. 
My seventh great-grandfather was a man named John Joseph Woodfill. That's on my mom's side. She was a Woodfill. He was the first Woodfill to immigrate to America. He immigrated from Wales to Philadelphia in 1755. He was a butcher by trade, but he was converted and became a Moravian minister and a missionary. He studied under John Wesley himself, so that just is pretty, that just moves him up in my book, as you know. And three of his sons all became Methodist ministers. His daughter marries two sons and four stepsons all became Methodist ministers as well. In fact, his daughter Mary was known as the mother of Methodism in Indiana and Kentucky. And they moved to Madison, Indiana, which is where my family is from. My dad's parents are from Madison, Indiana. My mom's parents are from Madison. And that's where all of them were from. We like to find those kind of things in our family tree, don't we? We're not, you know, we write history books about people like John Joseph Woodfield and Mary was Woodfield because they have good stories to tell, but then there are those that are fruitcakes. I found out some interesting things about some of my relatives. My brother did a DNA test and we found out some interesting things. And uh, I'm not going to tell you about them because someone might watch the live stream, but found out some interesting things. Not quite as pleasant. But look at Luke's genealogy here. It goes all the way back to Adam. And it's easy for us to kind of skip through these things, but Luke traces Jesus' lineage back through Nathan, the son of David and Bathsheba. I mean, you know how that relationship came to be. There's lust, adultery, murderer, and the list of sins goes on. Go back a little further and you see Perez, the son of Judah. Now before you skip those two names, just stop for a minute and consider those names. Perez is the son of a woman named Tamar. Now Tamar's story is found in Luke cha- or not Luke, Genesis chapter 38. And it's quite the story. Because Judah, the son of Jacob, the brother of Joseph, had a son named Ur. Judah got Tamar to be Ur, his son's wife. But Genesis 38, verse 7 says, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of God, and the Lord put him to death. I mean, that's, that's not exactly what you want to find out in your family tree. The Ur was so wicked, God put him to death. Well, Judah had another son named Onan. And so Judah told Onan to go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir for your brother. Well, he did what was wicked in the sight of God, so God put him to death too. So Tamar's had two husbands, both of which God's put to death. Well, then Judah has another son, but he's young. And so Judah tells Tamar to remain a widow in your father's house till Sheliel, my son, grows up. And then the Bible tells us why he did that. 
The Bible says, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. He had good reason to fear. After all, Tamar's husbands aren't doing too well. <laughs> then you find out it's not just her husbands that were wicked. Tamar finds out one day that Judah, her father-in-law, is going to be away from home. So she disguises herself as a prostitute in order to get pregnant from Judah, her father-in-law. She conceived and had two sons, and the oldest was Perez, the son of Judah. Once again, not the story that you like to hear and find out when you read through your family tree, because sometimes you find there's fruitcakes there. And here's my point. All of us are fruitcakes. You know what I mean? Because all of us are children of Adam. All of us, our lineage goes back to him. In Romans chapter 5, it tells us that therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned except one. Who's the one that didn't sin? Jesus. Romans 5 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ is the second Adam. And the second Adam was greater than the first. And 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm wrapping up. Paul said, for as one man, by one man came death. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, Jesus Christ was fully God. But he became fully man. So that through him and his sacrifice, you and I, could be made alive. Amen. Christ, the Son of God, became a son of Adam, that we sons of Adam might become sons of God. Amen. That's good stuff right there. Amen. Notice how Luke's genealogy ends. The son of Adam, the son of of God. It's kind of shouting, I think, there for our attention. Jesus came for fruitcakes like me, like you. When the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh through the incarnation. And now he's about 30 years old and he goes to be baptized to identify with us, to be numbered 
with the transgressors. The father said, You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God descended like a dove on Jesus. We'll talk a little bit more about that next Sunday. But here's my question for you. Do you know him? Does he know you?